0: Well, if you would turn to the book of Jude, and I doubt many Bibles open quickly to the book of Jude. Maybe John, but not Jude. Uh, if you get to Revelation, you went too far. All right, it's one that uh, often we pass over. And I've asked groups before, "Have you ever studied Jude?" And usually, no one has said, "No, I never had a formal study of Jude." Most scholars, I even was picking up another New Testament intro and. They're all in agreement. It's the most neglected book of the New Testament. So that's where we are. So if you would, turn to Jude. I thought you might enjoy this. Uh, Going to Israel, every time I go, there's something new that's being found. I I call it God's sense of humor because the liberals will say, ah, this doesn't exist, or they just try to discredit Scripture, and another thing is found. This was found some time ago, but uh, it's been more recently excavated and, and shown. Indeed, it does date... From the time of Solomon, it's, a, it's what they call a six-chamber gate. There's, there's actually three on each side. This is the entrance. This is the gutter system that they had created uh, for the water to flow through underneath the road. Um, but this is from the time of Solomon. And according to 1 Kings 9, Solomon fortifies three cities, Megiddo, Hazor, and Gezer. And in all three cities, we found his Solomon the, the gate, Solomon's gate. And it's only those three cities. Which is really significant. He also fortified one other city, and that's Jerusalem. And recently, they found some walls from the time of Solomon, which is very significant because most of First Temple era has been destroyed in Jerusalem. But they have found his water gate, so it, it, that that should excite you. It really should. Um, this group had the privilege of seeing all three cities that Solomon fortified. So anyway, here's another. We didn't see this, but it was just found while we were there, at least came to light. Uh, This is a boule, it's a seal impression, and this is really fun. Uh, It mentions Nathan Malak, servant of the king, who is mentioned in 2 Kings 23. He's a servant to King Josiah, and this is his seal, uh, this boule. Uh, We have several biblical characters where we have the seal that's been found in the old city. It's just further testimony that what we have is is the word of God. I've had grown men literally at sites crying because they said, I thought these were all fables. You know, maybe a little bit of truth, but really? These are true events, true places, true people? Yep. So um, if you've not been to Israel, you don't have to go with me. You got to go, though. (laughs) You got to see the land. Uh, You will not read the scriptures the same. And I can sit in the pew and tell you whether the pastor who's preaching has been to Israel based on how he handles the text. Uh, It's that obvious. It just is. They also, this has nothing to do with the scriptures, but they discovered a photo in the archives of the Israel Museum. I thought I'd share this with you. It's really significant. Um, (laughs) Where's Gail? Gail, they found this at the Israel Museum. It was really something. So I thought you'd love that. I want to thank our board, Tim Wagner, Gail Stoller, Tom Flynn, who uh, they pray for you. Even while I was away, we were interacting with one another on prayer request, and for Paul Druck, who handles all the sound. So guys, thank you. Well, the book of Jude, mentioned in your notes at the very opening there, this is very similar to 2 Peter. In fact, a debate which we're not going to get into is who borrowed from whom, uh, because some say Jude was first, others say second. Peter was first, because they, they're very, very similar. Both epistles are dealing with some serious issues that the church is facing. And I'm going to argue that Jude is probably one of the most relevant books for us living in the States at this time frame. Uh, they're dealing with issues of intolerance, uh, that, the, that the false teachers is saying, you know what, we need to be a little more tolerant as a people we need to let down the guard. We need to walk in grace. And and really, it's a ruse for hedonism, uh, cultural uh, accommodation. And that should sound familiar. I think that's where we are as a church at large. And, and that's what Jude is trying to address. It, it's often... I think neglected because it's seen as a downer of an epistle. (laughs) He's dealing with the false teachers. He hammers home. But really, the book starts on a glorious note, and it ends on a positive note. And I I want you to see that as we go along uh, and as we look at the letter. What I'd like to do today is to kind of give us an overview. Who is the author? What is the occasion? We, We missed that in our study, and that's vital to our examination of the text. We will address... The first two verses. We're only looking at Jude one this time around. Uh, You can. There's only one chapter. All right. So uh, we'll just deal with the chapter one. And if you notice the dates, remember we'll we'll meet the next three weeks. I go to Israel again. I apologize. It is my last trip for the year, uh, Lord willing. So, uh, but uh, have another tour that I'm doing. Then I'll be back and we'll finish Jude at that point. All right. So note. This week, the next two weeks, we're meeting, and then we're off a little bit and the back. Well, let's look at the author. Notice what it says in chapter 1, verse 1. From Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So what does our author tell us about himself? Of James. Okay, he's the brother of James. We can deal with James, who that is. Uh, he doesn't say he's a brother of Jesus. He says, I'm what of Jesus? Servant. Servant. Or better to render slave, and we'll get to that in a minute. So, in your notes, I mentioned that there are a lot of Jude or Judases. That name can be rendered either way in English. By the way, uh, in the first century, that was a common Jewish name, just as the same as Joshua, just as the same as Mary, though or Miriam. Those were common first-century Jewish names. Uh, I. I don't know if Jude became very popular after <laughs> the betrayal of Jesus. Uh, it's kind of like Adolf in Germany. That name became obsolete after World War II. But same here. You know, you 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 see this. Jude was a was a very common name, and and so when we go who which Jude, he he indicates that he's the brother of James, and even the James is not clarified, is it? Most scholars are going to argue this is the brother of Jesus. Uh, We know, I mentioned this in your text, there are are four brothers of Jesus that are mentioned in the Gospels, and this is most likely one of them. You could say half-brothers because obviously um, they don't share the same daddy, right? Um, But uh, Jude is most likely one of the four brothers of Jesus. And arguments for the support of that are listed there, and I just want to walk through them because this is vital. Um, we, w- vital why? We have an author who knows, who grew up with Jesus, saw the ministry, didn't believe at first. Later, 1 Corinthians, we're told the brothers uh, had an appearance of the resurrected Lord, and they embraced the gospel like James and Jude and the others, I'm sure, And so that's vital in understanding this text. This is someone who's intimately involved with the establishment of Christianity, was involved with the development that took place and was there from the get-go. But our author never claims to be an apostle. This is interesting because there is uh, another uh, Judas, uh, another apostle, not Judas Iscariot, but another who, who was listed in the scriptures and most likely that's not the one uh, and notice verse 17. Just look at Jude 17. <clears throat> it says, dear friends, recall the predictions foretold by the apostles as if it's another group. I'm not part of them. I'm distinct from the apostles, which is uh, significant. Secondly, he does not mention his father. Usually in the first century, if I'm to give credence, I'd say, well, I am the son of, in my case, Raymond. You know, that, that's my dad. You never would identify yourself as, I am the brother of so-and-so, unless brother so-and-so is very well known. What do we know about James, uh, the brother of Jesus in the first century? What do we know about him, according to the book of Acts? He's the leader of the church, the early church, right? He and Peter. And remember the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15? James played a key role in that whole equation. What else do we know about that, James? Well, if we were in Matthew thirteen fifty-five, it tells us a lot. Matthew thirteen fifty-five. Fifty-five, yes. You want to read it to us? And they said of Jesus, Is this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Yep. Yeah, the names are mentioned in Matthew. Uh, Jude's and, and James' names are both mentioned along with the other two. Good. Yes? Would, uh, to be son of Joseph be a claim of equivalency, or would it be... Most scholars are arguing because he says he's the brother of James. He, he's try, Well, first of all, he's not an apostle, so he needs to establish himself and his authority in writing the letter. And part of that is by saying, hey, James, the leader of the church, that's my brother. And that's why many believe the recipients are living in Palestine. They are Jews living in Israel. So that's where it's coming from. So James plays a key role, right? I know, we could talk more on that, but and he even pens, another, he pens an epistle, which we have in the New Testament. So he doesn't mention his father. He bears, the, the letter bears typical Palestinian Jewish flavor, I don't use Palestinian as we do today, right? Uh, But Palestine, that time frame. uh, It bears that uh, there's Jewish apocalyptic ideas. We'll talk about that later on. He refers to Jewish events. Our audience has to be Jewish and understand, I think, predominantly Jewish to understand the letter. And our author is very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. And finally... Some scholars will argue, well, it's a pseudonym. Uh, in other words, it's a false name used to try to give credence to the letter. Well, if that's the case, why would you use Jude? If I want a pseudonym, I'm going to pick Peter or Paul, someone really prestigious and powerful. Jude, he's a no-namer, really, in the whole game. And so that, that argument doesn't wash. So I, I, most scholars are in agreement. Our author is uh, Jesus' brother. And James's brother and by the way I even mentioned this there under your bullet uh, bullet points there Jude is quickly accepted as part of the canon in the early church by 200 and that's very significant it's a little epistle I mean Revelation and the book of James have problems being included in the canon Jude does not it's Im- almost immediately accepted as, as being canonical which is very significant um, and I think part of that's the ties that we see here. We'll come back to that opening there in a minute. But are there questions on authorship? Again, the question is, I know some of you are going, well, so what? Uh, well, again, it's significant. This, this is someone who's been intimately involved with the life of Christ and the establishment of the early church and, and undoubtedly played a key role in the early church. All right. <clears throat> well, what's the occasion and the date? Uh who knows? Uh, the problem is there's not enough for us to piece together. You remember the Charlie Brown movies with the phone conversations? Wah, 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 wah. And then you hear the Charlie Brown say something, and you can piece together what they're saying on the other end. That's hard to do with only a few verses. But most likely we're dealing with a group who are believers. He calls them friends in verse 13 and verse 17, so they are believers. Uh, who are in danger of heretical teaching, um, and perhaps Palestine. Secondly, the date, we don't know that either. It it probably is around 60 to 80. I know that's a large window. Uh, I don't normally... um, Well, that's not true. Uh, Our guide, the Israeli guide, they don't usually do the biblical teaching, which is really good. (laughs) Um, But at one point, he said, well, you know, the New Testament writings were written... In the second century?" I said, ah, no, hold on. <laughs> we need to talk. <laughs> so we, we went through all of that. I said, no, 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 no. The New Testament writings were written in the first century uh, with apostolic authority, et cetera. And so we talked about that. <clears throat> I said, it's, it's hard to have John being written in the second century when you have a copy dated at 110, Papyri 52. So we addressed that and pray for our guide. Uh, he's very open to the gospel. So uh, we're going to walk through the Gospel of John together. I said, you know, if, if you're leading Christian groups, you really need to know, uh, you need to be familiar with the Gospels. So it was a good conversation. Anyway, that's another side note. He did say, of all the groups he leads, evangelical groups are the most interesting. He said, I, I really enjoy them the most. He said, they have something. He said, I don't know what it is. It's a heart issue. <laughs> I said, well, let's talk about that. <clears throat> So, uh, all right. Well, the structure of the book on page two, you can see it's very straightforward. Uh, and this book is unlike the book of James, which will give you a gas to outline. Uh, Jude is very straightforward. It's carefully constructed. As I mentioned, there's both a positive uh, beginning and an end to it. So there is a high note uh, that, that surrounds this book. And third... This is fun, and I want you to watch for these as we go through. He loves triplets. He loves speaking in threes, so he had to have been a pastor. Because um, notice in verse two, for instance, may mercy, peace, love. Boom. There is only one time when he deviates from giving us three, uh, and I won't tell you what that is. You can we'll, we'll get to it. Uh, but if you, uh, it's very interesting. Even his illustrations, he always gives three illustrations. Uh, And so watch for that as we go through. Uh, It it is interesting. Well, any questions on the background of the letter? Let's get to the good stuff. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Let's see what he says. We read verse 1, but I'll read it again. From Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Slave, by the way, is the best rendering. That's more than simply a servant. This is someone who is indebted, who is uh, there to, to um, elevate his master. Brother of James, to those who are, now watch this, you have three things, called, wrapped in the love of God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be lavished on you. These two verses are just rich. Uh, let's unpack these and, and look at this. The first is that he mentions that I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. This is not unique with Jude. Think about Paul. He often mentions that I'm a servant or a slave of Christ. Uh, you see this even in the Old Testament, with Moses and David and other characters who say I'm a slave of Christ. Uh, there's a sense of indebtedness. Uh, there's also a sense and I put this in your notes, a very high Christology, especially in the New Testament, because in the Old Testament, you were a slave to Yahweh. And now I'm a slave to Christ. And what is it doing? It's making Christ and Yahweh equal, isn't it? And I know the question is, well, why didn't he say he was a brother of Jesus Christ? I mean, if you want to give credence and and give authority, you know, look who my brother is. I would argue that goes without saying. And number two, he understands that his relationship to Jesus is far different than simply they had the same mama. (laughs) Uh, the issue is, he is my Lord, and an understanding. And, and James is the same way. Remember James? Uh, in fact, turn over to James just briefly. Look at this. Uh, James says, from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So James, the other brother of Jesus, is quick to say, I'm a slave of Christ. An understanding of, of his relationship to Jesus. Isn't that, that little family tie thing went out the window long ago. Um, even Mary needed the gospel, right? Contrary to some Christian teachings, uh, even she needed the gospel. And so we see a high Christology by this reference. And here's another though, there's still authoritative commission that's being brought forth. In fact, I quote Green in his commentary there on page two. He says, a claim to authority, divine commission, and perhaps even inspiration, In other words, what Jude is saying is what I'm about to declare to you is because I represent Christ and this is what he would have for you to know. Uh, It's very significant. It's not merely this oh, I'm just a little slave A a statement of humility. I mean, this is a peacock with his feathers out. Boom! I'm a slave of Christ. So what I'm about to deliver you is no different than what Paul would have told you or, or my brother James. But also... And then the highlights that I my brother is James. so you, you have that going into uh, in, to play as well. Questions on this? Very significant. He's establishing why. I mean the, he calls them friends. He has a great relationship. Why? Because he's about to address the false teachers. And the question is to the readers, why should I trust you over the false teachers? Why are what, you, what you're telling me is more significant than what they're telling me? In fact, they wax a lot more eloquent than you, Jude, most likely, right? Yeah, Dick? Is this the only writing of Jude? That's, uh... Yes, this is the only writing we have. And again, accepted very early on in the church. So uh, I, that's very significant that it's included in the Muratorian canon and the Tertullian references, early church fathers. Very significant. Well... Notice what he says here about the readers. And, uh, well, he, he identifies them three ways. He says, first of all, you have been called. This is not a foreign concept in the scriptures. Frequently, God is the one who calls. We see that in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. It's a major theme in the New Testament. In fact, turn to 1 Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy 6. This is before Hebrews 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, Paul writes to little Tim and he says, verse 16, he alone possesses immortality, Uh, I'm sorry, this is wrong, 6.12, complete well for the faith and lay hold of that eternal life you were called for. Throughout the New Testament, when it talks about God's calling you, it's referencing salvation and the call to be obedient. The two go hand in hand. But if God's called you, in other words, he has extended to you salvation. He's, he's wooed you to his side is the idea that's being conveyed here when it says you have been called. And so going back to Jude, he says, first of all, you've been called. Significant because there's some undermining going on over here by the false teachers. He says, remember, first of all, you have been called. Um. It reminds me of of, uh, Christ's words to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, right? Uh, The church that kind of lost their fire for God. And and he says, there's two things you need to do to restore your your fire for the Lord. Remember where Christ has brought you. Recall that you've been called. Look at what God has done for you. But Jude is not done there. He says, next, you're wrapped, and I love this description, you're wrapped in the love of of God the Father. Now, if you have a, uh, does anyone have an NIV, new international version? Can, what is the preposition after wrapped? Or what do you have that phrase? You got called and then what's the next phrase? Would you mind reading it to us, Chuck? This is in verse one. You've been called. Loved, ah, that's not what I thought I had. The old NIV, and maybe, uh, maybe I'm missing this, NIV has wrapped, yeah? I say that uh, standard is beloved. Beloved, yes. There's two ways you can render it is where I'm going with this. The, the old NIV had uh, buy. It was the agency which it's done. The Net Bible, and it sounds like more than what the NIV recently, has more of the sphere you are wrapped in this realm. It's, it's what is securing you is the love of God. And I think that's the idea here. Certainly through scripture, when it says God has called you, love is quickly associated. In other words, you weren't called because you're bright, beautiful, and uh, born on the right side of the tracks. <laughs> no, the reason God called you was because God loved you. There's nothing you brought to this equation. And that's what Jude is trying to remind his audience is, listen, you've been called. And secondly, you've been called because God simply loved you so. Green in his commentary states, God's election of people is not motivated by their merit as if they were elected and called and due to their virtue. And that's a great line. He's right. That's not, Jude is highlighting, you've been wrapped in the love of God. Uh, in this realm. And then finally he states, and you are kept for Jesus Christ. Prepositions in Greek uh, give first year Greek students a lot of gas <laughs> because they can be rendered a, a variety of ways. And, and this is a case in point. And scholars will debate this last phrase, kept. It can be the idea. And I have this in your notes. The NIV has kept by Christ as a means of agency, or it could be kept for Christ. That's the in-game kind of an idea. Grammatically, I think the latter rending, rendering is better. You'd figure I would say that. Um, Schreiner would disagree with me in his commentary. Uh, yeah, see, they, they've even corrected themselves in the NIV. No, uh, it, it could be rendered either way. But I, I think the idea fits better with this epistle. He's going to focus on the end, the eschaton. You are being kept for this. Look at First Peter. First uh, Peter highlights this. First Peter 1, uh, 5. Look at this. And, and notice what Peter states in 1, 5. He says, who by God's power are protected through faith for what? A salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. So Peter says, listen, you've been saved for the purpose of the end game. If I'm reading the prepositions correctly, what Jude has just done is given us the whole story of salvation. You've been called, you're being sanctified, and you will be glorified. That's what he's stating. Yes, all because of Christ. Are you saying, are you saying because my God's word here in my head says, Love by God the Father and then kept safe with Jesus Christ? So are you saying love by is a little bit you're, 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 you that's you could do, it's either loved by or wrapped in. It could be an in or by. Concept yep. Right. Yeah. And at the end of the end game, and I even put this by Schreiner, who I don't agree with in his understanding the preposition, says, is whatever position you take, the message is clear. Those whom God has called to himself are loved by and kept until the day of salvation. That's the idea. But it's interesting, you could see this whole salvation story. You've been called, you have been kept, and you will be, or you're being sanctified, and you'll, you'll be glorified in the process. It's so key, because he's setting this up. When you, when you read the epistles in the New Testament, don't gloss over the greeting. It's very, it's the roadmap for the rest of the epistle, When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, the the church of uh, a whole host of problems, in 1 Corinthians 1, he talks about how they are sanctified, (laughs) being set apart and holy. That church is not holy. Well, they got a whole host of problems, but he's setting them up for what he's going to address. Jude is doing the same thing. He's saying, listen, you're secure by God. Here is what he's done for you. Don't listen to what the false teachers are doing. Be very careful. And so it's preparing it. And in fact, in his wish there, the next thing you see in verse 2, he gives this prayer, may mercy, peace, and love. What is missing? What would you have... Grace, in fact, there's a... I made a mistake in your notes there. It should be grace. Grace is absent. Why? Wouldn't you think he highlight grace? Everyone loves grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. They've already received it, but they've also received some mercy and some peace and love. Yeah, I think the secret is they're abusing grace. They've got a group in the camp, or so they think they're in the camp saying, you know what, God's grace means you you can do whatever you want. You know, we are free in, free in Christ. I was reading a, a politician from this state uh, recently talking about grace, and that's who he is. This is how God's made him, and this is just wonderful, uh, and I'm free to do whatever I want because of grace, and I'm going, no, I'm not, uh, no, 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 <laughs> you're missing the point, and, and I think that's why you would expect a wonderful hello in his greeting, and and. And Jude does not give a hello. He immediately jumps into this prayer. Uh, You would, and secondly, he does not refer to grace. The grace is the problem. That's what he's got to deal with the misunderstanding of grace. But he, they do need mercy. They do need peace, and they do need love. Why? Let me highlight these three. Let's look at this. The first of these is mercy, and I mentioned this in your notes. They they need God's mercy to withstand the teachers, and they also need to show mercy to those who have succumbed to the false teachers. Right? They could easily become the frozen chosen and think they have a corner on truth and the rest are going to hell and so be it. And where do I see that? Look at verses 22 and 23 of Jude. He says, And have mercy on those who waver. There it is. And so, and, and this is the real danger, isn't it, with uh, theology and studying the Word. Uh, and it's, we can easily become very um, callous to those who might struggle because we don't. <laughs> and, and that's the danger here that I think Jude is, is trying to to curtail. But they also need God's mercy in, in navigating through the waters Secondly, they need peace. The false teachers have brought unbelievable division and strife within the church. And that division is spilling over to their very relationship with the Lord. So they need peace with God. They need peace with one another. Uh, The church is split. They're trying to figure out, you know. And this isn't simply what color of the carpet should be. We're dealing with doctrinal issues. We're dealing with moral issues that are splitting the church in the first century. Um, these signs that say we're a first century church, I kind of chuckle a little bit, and then I, I cringe because th- there were a lot of problems in the first century church. And, and they're trying to navigate as well and know how to follow the Lord, and, and there are issues. Uh, just look at 1 Corinthians. And, and that's Jude is highlighting that as well. This, this church is not exempt and he's gravely concerned. We, we've got people who are saying, hey, you can do whatever you want. And under the under the ruse of it's its grace. We have liberty. We have freedom in Christ. We can do whatever we want to do. No, 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 no. And the issue, of course, is love. And there's this concept of love that the false teachers have just corrupted. And they're using it as a license to do whatever they want, to live as they want. I wrote a question down, and it's, Something to think about as we read this epistle. How are these three areas relevant to the church in America today? And and I, I challenge us to think through this, not we're doom and gloom or well, there's some great things happening in the church, and we live in exciting days, I think, where a world that has lost the understanding of mercy, certainly peace, and what is true love? And so we have a great opportunity to stand in the gap and say, no, this is what the Word of God says. And it's like Mati, our guide in Israel, who says, there's peace here that I, I don't see when I give tours to Israelis or to Jewish groups. To He said, only evangelicals. There's something very unique that's different. That's what he's talking about, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, these false teachers, they, they think they're the cat's meow. And also trying, yeah, hands down. And we're going to see that as we go along. Similar to Second Peter, uh, they're equated with those of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're equated with, you know, those who have, uh, uh, f- like the angels that have fallen. I mean, there there's no words spared by Jude just as there wasn't spared by Peter. Peter, they see the danger. They see the danger of the church, etc. Well, let me give you some things to walk away with, because I don't want this merely as an academic. If that's all we uh, we've done, then we've we've failed the task. But I, I'm hoping you see the beauty of this letter uh, and the relevancy. Number one, or letter A, is God's calling stems from His great love for us. We know that, but what a reminder, right? Uh, Ephesians two. It's a familiar text. You know, every time I go to Israel and I'm there at what they, we call the Wailing Wall, they call it the Kotel or the, the Western Wall, and you see all these folks praying. You go, Lord, why me? Oh, thousands of people, and you, you called me. Yeah. Ephesians 2 says in verse 4, For God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. It goes back to verse 4 of chapter 1. Even though we were dead in sins, he made us alive in Christ. And this whole it's because he loved us, his calling. Secondly, as we look at this, God's calling is established and guaranteed. It's based upon his sovereign power and his omniscience. What is omniscience? All-knowing. He's all powerful and all-knowing. The God of the universe uh, not only he called you, he has the wherewithal to see it fulfilled. Right? That's why he can say, he's keeping you for the end. He knows the end game and he'll assure you're going to win, right? If you watched the Pacers game last night, you were biting your nails at the very end. They won it uh, due to a foul. Did you saw that game? That was awesome. But I I told my son, ah, they're not going to win. They gave a game away. We're done. And uh, we don't have to worry about whether God's going to give the game away. He's called us. All right, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, just want you to look at this, this turn there. My time is right, right? I don't want to run over. I got one minute. Good. Uh, We will end on time. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Watch what verse 8 states, that he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He did that for us. That is awesome, all right? And then finally, God's calling comes with the purpose. Again, there's the end game. Those he called, he will see glorified. His reputation and his character is at stake, right? That's the God we serve. Well, it's a great little epistle, and I'm excited. And the beauty is, because it's a short book, we can move through it slowly and unpack some very difficult text, actually. I think that's one of the reasons the epistle is avoided in Bible studies. Um, But there's so much here that we can glean. So looking forward to it. Well, let me pray and we'll end. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. Uh, Go go before them today and their various activities and uh, events that they have going on. And uh, Lord, we just love you. We are so thankful that you called us before the foundation of the world, and when this world dissolves and you, you dismantle it, we're still there, and we'll be with you for all eternity. And we marvel at your grace, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.